Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear from leading thinkers from our university and around the world. If you would like to hear more from our experts, why not attend Raising the Bar 2017, which will see some of our academics give 20 talks in 10 bars across Sydney, all on one night, Wednesday the 25th of October. To register for your free ticket, head to raisingthebarsydney.com.au. Enjoy the podcast. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge the local Indigenous custodians of the land here in this part of Australia, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And I think it's particularly important that we do that tonight when we're thinking strongly about connections between people, their place, and our shared planet. Tonight I'm delighted that, to welcome Mark Stafford-Smith, who is an ecologist, to speak with us about uh, Future Earth, the essentially a new uh, global platform, a knowledge platform, to help accelerate the transformations we need to make to sustainable ways of living. Mark's a former CEO of the Desert Knowledge CRC, where he was based in Alice Springs for 20 years, and he currently uh, leads the coordination of climate change adaptation work across CSIRO from a base in Canberra. Among a range of international science leadership roles, he's also currently the founding chair of the science committee for that science program, Future Earth. Before we get underway and I invite Mark to speak, I'd like to show you a short three-minute video. Welcome to the Anthropocene. I think this is a good place for us to start tonight because it will help ensure that we're all on the same page for Mark's talk and the conversation that we'll have afterwards. We might need the lights down just a, a bit to uh, ensure that we can see it well. Thanks very much. Sediment and rock annually than all natural. 
processes, such as erosion and rivers. We manage three quarters of all land outside the ice sheets. Greenhouse gas levels this high have not been seen for over one million years. Temperatures are increasing. We have made a hole in the ozone layer. We are losing biodiversity. Many of the world's deltas are sinking due to damming, mining, and other causes. Sea level is rising. Ocean acidification is a real threat. We are altering Earth's natural cycles. We have entered the Anthropocene, a new geological epoch dominated by humanity. This relentless pressure on our planet risks unprecedented destabilization. But our creativity, energy, and industry offer hope. We have shaped our past. We are shaping our present. We can shape our future. You and I are part of this story. We are the first generation to realize this new responsibility. As the population grows to 9 billion, we must find a safe operating space for humanity, for the sake of future generations. Welcome to the Anthropocene. So that video was uh, developed for the Planet Under Pressure conference in London in 2012, and Mark was the co-chair of that conference, and it went on, the video was used uh, to open the Rio Plus 20 conference uh, uh, later that year. And uh, it was developed by uh, a team who are now based at Future Earth in uh, communications, and uh, I hope you found it uh, a useful way to begin. I certainly find it quite a compelling uh, way to open a conversation like this. So, Mark, over to you. Thanks very much. All right, thank you very much, Tony, and uh, thank you to everyone who's turned up on a Tuesday evening to listen to this. Um, I'd, I'd really like to get a sense of my audience. Uh, could you give me an idea of uh, who regards themselves as being part of the university, or perhaps, or perhaps let me put that the other way, who's come from outside the university? Oh, cool, that's good. Um, I can tell how many of you are female and how many are male, but perhaps uh, how many of you are sort of graduate students or involved in the university in that sort of way? Well, that's great, it's good to see some younger people here. I want to ask how many people are over 50. I could ask how many people have filled in their uh, voting forms for the marriage equality debate and sent them off. Uh, looks like a few of you need to act on that uh, one way or the other. I won't ask you which way you're going to vote. Okay, um, well, I want to uh, I talk a bit to this theme of integration this evening, and I guess I've got sort of, I guess, two broad objectives, which I hope are useful to you. Uh, one is to talk a little bit about Future Earth itself, and I'll intersperse that in, in uh, what I'm talking about. Um, but the other really is to talk about this, this theme of integration, um, in that I think there are all sorts of ways in which we can do research. Um, and I'm going to use, I'll try and use the term research, I'm looking at you here, Ian, Ian McCallum, uh, to I'm going to try and use the word research, by which I'm trying to uh, perhaps loosely incorporate all forms of knowledge development. Um, and not get us stuck on the idea that the only real research is physics or something like that, even if, are there any physicists in the room? 
uh, no one who's going to, oh yes, Manfred, I'm sure you're a physicist. Anyway, no one's going to admit to it. But, um, but I mean, because a lot of the integration I want to talk about is actually trying to get good uh, interlinkages, interdisciplinary linkages between, between disciplines. And you'll see that many of the issues I talk about are almost impossible to imagine how you would deal with them without some, at least some of that. But I do also want to come back to the reality that uh, that's not appropriate for every problem. And I'll talk a bit about that. Um, so uh, let me start off by um, finding the clicker. Uh, let me start off by just talking a bit to the background for why we might want to worry about these things. And in a way, the film that Tony just showed uh, has already introduced that. But uh, if you'll indulge me, I'm going to introduce you to two members of my family, because this year is a sort of quite significant or quite a sort of mathematically interesting one for us, where my mother uh, is 90 and I'm 60, uh, and my uh, elder son has just turned 30 this year. And this sort of makes you think about some things occasionally. Maybe it doesn't always make you think about these sorts of things. But this is uh, what my mother has seen during her lifetime. She's seen a, that you sort of saw on that, in that film. She's seen about a three and a half times increase in the world's population during that time. But actually, at least if not more important, she's seen something like a 15-fold increase in, in, in consumption, basically, as measured here by global GDP. Uh, this is an amazing sort of increase in the amount of pressure that we're putting on the planet. Uh, and it highlights that population is an important issue. Uh, but in a way, you can sort of see a potential end to the population growth. We don't know quite where, but you know, somewhere around 9 or 10 billion people, hopefully. Um, whereas it's actually not so easy to see an end to the issues of consumption. Uh, and that's probably a much bigger uh, challenge for us to think about. Now, David, my son there, on the other hand, um, I, I use this graph quite a bit to talk about climate change uh, in my day-to-day -day work. Uh, and it's, a, it's actually the, from the Bureau of Meteorology, it's the annual averaged surface temperature across all of Australia. So for the whole year, just averaged. And then, uh, and then it's, uh, this zero line here is the average during 1960 to 1990. And of course, the blue ones are below that average and the red ones are above it. And it's reasonably easy to see that there's a bit of a trend there. But the thing that I just, I was using this earlier in the year, and my son turned 30, and this was the poster that some friends of his stuck up on his office window just to embarrass him. Um, and it struck me that he, born about here, has essentially never experienced a below average year here in Australia, or well, only very, very slightly. Um, and this is a staggering thing, I think, for the younger ones amongst you. You are actually growing up and experiencing and internalizing a world which is just so fundamentally different uh, to the sort of one that, well, particularly my, my mother, has managed to live through with all of this. Um, so uh, we are clearly in a time of change. Um, and the whole uh, great acceleration that you saw in the film there, the idea of, uh, of all of these graphs, which were the ones that were being flicked up in the background there, I mean, you probably can't read them in detail, but really you don't need to. They all show the 250-year or so uh, time period that, uh, that the film was talking about. That little dotted line there is uh, 1950, so you can get a sense of of where this extraordinary upturn in all sorts of things are. The first two are population and GDP there, um, but there's all sorts of other things in terms of energy use and uh, urbanization, the amount of water we use, uh, telecommunications, other aspects of internationalization um, in these <coughs> drivers here, all showing this extraordinary acceleration. And not surprisingly then, the right-hand part of this that shows some of the impacts, uh, the top row is climate-related things, carbon dioxide in the top corner, uh, but then all sorts of other effects like ocean acidification, uh, impacts on our, on our fisheries, on the uh, amount of nitrogen getting into the coastal zone, and impacts on uh, biodiversity and, and, and so on. 
Um, the important thing about this is not, well, I mean, it is, in fact, some of the individual graphs because there are some hopeful signs in some of them, but the, but the really important thing is just this shape, that we can't go on doing business as usual. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is not just a sort of gradual change that's steadily getting a bit more and more. This is an accelerating rate of change, and we have to think about accelerating ways of responding to that in knowledge and practice uh, on the planet. And all of that, of course, sits behind this idea of the Anthropocene, as the film says, this idea that we are now a force of geological magnitude on the, on the planet. And I think this actually uh, leads to a really quite a deep philosophical, almost sort of religious, certainly ethical uh, element about how we think about uh, our relationship with the planet, because it's not enough anymore to imagine that it's just there to be exploited and that if we stuff something up, we can go west or something and find another bit. Um, we really have to recognize that, uh, at the moment at least, it's, uh, as the, as the um, picture shows, it's our plan A and there isn't a planet B. Um, and so we have this new, should have this new sense of uh, a stewardship responsibility uh, in our relationship with, uh, with the planet in how we look after it. And that was a point made very nicely at the Planet Under Pressure conference that Tony mentioned um, by Lynn Ostrom, who was the uh, economics Nobel laureate. So, um, uh, I, I mean, that puts a, a big onus on us to, to do something. And actually, 19, uh, 2015, I'm going back a century, 2015 in many ways was quite a hopeful year, I felt, quite a positive year, because there was a series of major international agreements which essentially, um, for you know, however good the detail of them was, or however bad the detail was, the, there was this sense that our global, globally our leaders were trying to put a stamp on on where we ought to be trying to go. There was, a, there was the conference on disaster risk reduction in Sendai in early in that year. Uh, there was the whole uh, Agenda 2030 that was the sort of three year later upshot of the, uh, of the um, Rio Plus 20 conference that, that Tony mentioned in, in Rio, in Brazil in 2012. Uh, and then, um, you know, almost to our surprise, I think we had the amazingly good outcome in terms of a, of a, a target, at least, for, from Paris on the climate side. Um, and some of that continued into the following year with some things that perhaps weren't quite as momentous as those, but had a sense of, uh, a sense of momentum sort of building on those previous things. N needless, and, and so in a sense, you did have uh, this idea that the world leaders were setting us the challenge of this is where we ought to be trying to go. Uh, of course, the occasional little thing pops in and uh, disturbs this um, great vision from time to time. Um, but nonetheless, I think, um, in essence, what that has, has said is that, there is a, that there's a target out there and, and it puts a significant onus on the uh, research community in the broadest of senses, um, the academic community, to, um, to be thinking about how we can contribute to delivering to it. So just a few quick words on Future Earth. I don't want to spend long on structures and things like that, but just to say that Future Earth itself was launched actually at the uh, Rio Plus 20 meeting. And it was, in, in a sense, uh, coming from some of the peak research bodies globally. It was sort of, a, if you like, the research community's um, commitment uh, from those peak bodies to trying to play its part in building the science policy, research policy interface uh, into a better state. Um, so Future Earth really is this global platform for, uh, to support international research collaboration in this whole area of global sustainability and human well-being. Uh, to do that, um, it has as a number of its sort of uh, key guiding ideas that we really have to get much more integrated uh, in relation to delivering research to these uh, challenges and the, and the potential to create transformations, as Tony mentioned again. 
uh, that to do that we needed to be a bit more solutions oriented. That's not to say that there isn't some great fundamental research to be done, uh, but that we do need some of that really well focused on trying to understand how we can more quickly deliver knowledge to, um, to decision makers who might put it into effect. That in turn means having stronger partnerships uh, with those decision makers and, and funders and so forth, uh, and improving that communication of, uh, between science and society, or that should probably read research and society. And all of that really is trying to meet what I would say is the core purpose of Future Earth, which is to try and build a more, uh, contribute at least the research aspects to a more nimble uh, global innovation system uh, in the face of this, uh, these increasing rates of change. Um, Future Earth itself didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, there had actually been, uh, there has been a long period of a whole series of international organizations doing some coordination of global change research in various different ways. Uh, the World Climate Research Program here, which perhaps some of you are involved in, which uh, has been around for a long time and is still around, uh, been very instrumental in drawing the whole set of issues around climate change to global attention. Uh, a number of other things I think I won't even bother to go through the horrible acronyms. Uh, in fact, the single worst one was the one I was involved in, which is IGBP, which I'm not even going to tell you what it is, because I guarantee you won't remember it for 10 seconds. Uh, but between them, they dealt with thinking about the Earth system more generally, about dealing with the biodiversity aspects and starting to think about the human dimensions of all of this. Uh, and basically, those last three have been brought together in Future Earth. So there's a huge legacy of uh, activity, which I want to give you a very brief idea of. Um, Future Earth itself has adopted these eight challenges, which, are, which would not be sort of foreign. We were developing them at the same time as the Sustainable Development Goals were being developed, but they're pretty synergistic with those. Um, there's longer details about this, and I'll direct you at the end to have a look on Future Earth's website if you're interested in looking at these in more detail. Uh, but you would see, even on a quick glance uh, through these sorts of topics, that they're all really complex social ecological issues that deeply need uh, integrated approaches to thinking about how one might actually act on them. Um, again, I don't want to spend long on structure, but I just want to give you an idea of how one can engage with Future Earth. So Future Earth has uh, a, a, an open network uh, which you can log into, connect into online. And the idea of that is that really anyone, any organization who's loosely aligned with the objectives could be involved in that and at least uh, start to create conversations in there. That's something which is steadily growing. Um, there are uh, a number of essentially uh, international research communities that have come mostly from these previous uh, uh, institutions that, that represent a huge um, ongoing legacy, or more than a legacy, it's really uh, continuing in terms of good research in a whole variety of areas. I'll put a list of them up in a moment, but, uh, but just be assured it's a huge range. But I have to say they were, they were dominated by um, a, a largely science-driven uh, approach to this. And so what we're trying to couple that with uh, now is this new idea of a knowledge action network. Uh, really trying to bring decision makers and, uh, and the research together to think about those key priorities that I noted a minute ago uh, and some cross-cutting issues across them. So those are the sort of key uh, structural elements of Future Earth plus a, plus a smaller scale thing which is uh, generating some fast tra track initiatives which are really about some uh, short-term nimble things to get new ideas going or do a synthesis or something like that that might trigger a new network. Um, uh, there's a lot of other structure to do with actual offices and things like that, but I'm not even going to tell you about that. Um, there's a load then of these research communities in these global research projects. Again, I don't want to actually talk about these other than just to say 
you'll get a quick sense that it covers all sorts of things, uh, uh, tending to be um, a bit sort of, they're, they're really disciplinary networks operating at a global level. Um, as with Future Earth generally, they're, they're not actually the place uh, really primarily where research happens. They're more about convening the research uh, and trying to synthesize and draw messages out of it. Um, but I'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. But you can see the sort of breadth of things there. But if you cast your eye over that, you can also see there's some big gaps. Uh, it clearly doesn't actually deal terribly well with things like economics. Uh, we're pretty light on the sort of engineering side, and we are largely absent on things like the environmental humanities uh, and things like that. So uh, part of that broader network, uh, open network, is very much trying to bring in some of those gaps uh, to address the issues that we need to try and tackle. And so this other element of these uh, knowledge action networks, again, I'm not going to go through them in great detail. Uh, I just want to highlight the fact you can go and look at them at that website if you're interested. Uh, this is some of the initial ones that are starting to operate now, uh, dealing with some of these challenges. I'll leave the health one there just for a moment because uh, this issue of planetary health that uh, Tony is very involved in and the, the, new inst the new institution here in the university is closely aligned with this and, uh, and very important in terms of thinking about where this might go. Um, so that's one uh, really key idea that's floating around in here. Uh, there are other things here. You can perhaps see that these are more thematic cross-cutting um, topics that uh, in the case of oceans are a sort of geographic cross-cut. Uh, in the case of transformations, are thinking about processes that we need to be able to replicate in different areas. Uh, and of course, in terms of finance and economics, is thinking about some of those underpinning uh, issues that might, that might enable or not enable us to make progress in, in various areas. And the last one to mention here is one uh, addressing the sustainable development goals. Um, there are actually two or three others that are developing since, I, since this slide was made, but uh, as I say, have a look online if you're interested to see uh, about that. And I should say there are various different stages of development and so on. Um, but I leave the SDG sustainable development goals one up uh, last because I really want to switch now to talk a bit more about those. Let me just get a sense who here uh, has heard of the SDGs, if I say that abbreviation. Don't be shy to say no, because I'll just say a bit more about them if not. All right, cool, that's good to know. Um, so uh, one of the outcomes of the... Um, one of the outcomes of the Rio Plus 20 conference in 2012 as a result, actually, of quite a bit of work that happened in the year or two before that, uh, was to recognize that uh, the Millennium Development Goals, which came into play around in the early 2000s and were supposed to deliver a series of development outcomes by 2015, um, that they were going to run out in 2015 and that maybe we should think about uh, what needed to follow that. And there were a number of lessons from the MDGs. So the MDGs, uh, that's the Millennium Development Goals, uh, there were eight of them. Um, they were mostly targeted at development issues like uh, um, food security, uh, issues like women's equality, uh, gender equality, uh, at, at uh, childhood health, uh, education, um, and uh, poverty. There was one of them which called itself environment, but actually it was mostly about water and sanitation. There was a little bit of environment stuff in there, but not much. And they were targeted very much at supporting the developing world to uh, make progress on those. And I would say uh, there was lots of things that came out of them, but I would say if there were, uh, uh, let's see, three, two or three, uh, depending on how many I think of, uh, messages, that there, were, there were some lessons that came out of them. One was that if you had a good target, it was actually possible to make progress. So perhaps the first message that came out of them was that some of them actually, there was a lot of progress made against. Some of them there wasn't much, but... Um, 
But uh, where there was a good target, uh, it was actually possible to mobilize investment to really try and make progress there. And things like the, uh, the uh, young, the health of children, there was a, really, the stunting of children, there was a really significant improvement, not everything that we need, but a, but a significant improvement there, and a, and a number of others that were ma made quite a bit of progress. The sort of quid pro quo on that was that if you had the wrong target, uh, you got a really bad outcome, or you, got a, you could uh, appear to get progress and, and actually not. So, for example, the education target was the number of kids in school, which is not actually the number of kids that get a good education. And so in some countries, at least, there was a very rapid uh, uh, implementation of teachers who really weren't very well trained, and the statistics on the number of kids going to school improved, but actually the numbers with math skills and uh, being, old, being literate uh, didn't improve in some countries as much as it should have. Um, there was also uh, a fragmentation, which was a sort of general issue, which was that individual UN bodies tended to take ownership of one of these because there was, in the end there was resource investment associated with it and there was a fair bit of competition, um, so individual bodies tending to jealously guard their ground and consequently there wasn't much thought about the interaction between them and the opportunities that might come from that, which is really where I want to go to in this. Uh, and at the biggest level, uh, that the key interaction there was that we might make progress in these relatively shorter term social outcomes but have the whole lot undermined by things like climate change in the medium to longer term. So that was sort of a bit of background to thinking, well, maybe we need a set of goals that are a little bit more uh, universal. They apply to all countries, uh, that they tackle a wider variety of issues, and that they try and really get to grips with the sort of balance of the environmental aspects and the, um, and the human development side. And so there's a whole lot of history in how that happened, which I won't go into. Um, but that was sort of the backdrop to an outcome which took uh, three years to negotiate. But in 2015, uh, there was this agreement to these 15 um, sustainable development goals, which I shall probably slip into calling SDGs uh, for the rest of the talk. Um, if you haven't seen them before, you probably won't be able to see all of them. But I'll just tell you loosely that they deal still with some of those social outcomes like poverty and or poverty alleviation. Um, hunger and uh, health and well-being and so on. Uh, but they also deal with some more uh, higher level uh, issues to do with economies and, uh, and, and uh, sustainable, uh, sustainable consumption and production. Uh, they deal with, there, was a city, there is a cities goal about sustainable cities. And there are also some which are sort of more directly aimed at the environment in terms of life below water and life on land and, uh, and climate change. Uh, but there are, but there's, a, there's a huge amount of richness in there, and below the 17 goals there are actually 169 targets um, and now about 240 indicators. I'll come back to that issue in just a moment. I, I, I actually feel, though, um, so there's various things that one can critique with how they're unfolding now, um, but actually at a high level, this was an extraordinary statement of 17 high-level goals that every country in the world signed off on um, which, uh, and, and they've got more text behind them than this that was actually agreed to, so there's you know, something reasonably concrete there to, to look at. And at a high level of an architecture of thinking about where we want to go, I, I think they're an amazing achievement. Um, and in some ways, it's that high level architecture which is the thing we should cling on to because some of the detailed targets perhaps are sensible or not sensible. Um, but at the high level, the, the overall picture, I think, is pretty good. And I think one of the great things it does is it enables one to look at um, any one of these, like I happen to have picked out the health and well-being one here, and to ask um, if we, in, in, in achieving this goal, if we achieve this goal, 
what uh, benefits or conflicts might it have with the other goals, and conversely, if we achieve other goals, how can they help us achieve this one? And this was the great issue about policy coherence, which the MDGs failed to address, um, and which we find perpetually as a challenge in the international sphere, because we don't actually lack for um, agreements internationally. There are over 700 multilateral environmental agreements in the world. Um, so we're not actually short on the agreements themselves. What we're largely short on is coordination uh, amongst them, as well as the will to, to fulfill some of them. So anyway, I think it's a fantastic framework for thinking about this. Um, and and uh, I want to sort of pick that up in a, in a number of different ways. Uh, one of the things that's, um, and I, I really want to pick up on some of the sort of thinking that we are trying to develop in the Sustainable Development Goals um, Knowledge Action Network in, in Future Earth in relation to this, because um, there, there are some things that have to be done about just sort of monitoring these. Uh, we, we need to have some sense of whether there is actually progress being done. Uh, but I have to say that at the moment, uh, the world is a bit distracted by simply trying to put together the statistics to do that. So there's a huge effort in these 240 indicators. And we do sort of need that, but it's not very, it's sort of taking attention away from actually achieving the goals rather than just how, how on earth we might monitor them. Um, so from the future Earth point of view, there are things we can do from the research point of view to help with that monitoring process. There are things we can do to help in the individual goals, thinking about the how you might deliver some of them, and I think there's some very exciting research uh, opportunities there. Uh, but there is also, I think, a need um, for the research community to stand back a little bit and ask uh, how can these be better integrated to meet that original objective of, um, of, of an integrated approach to the, the outcomes at a global level. So, um, so let me take you through, I'm going to take you through three uh, quick topics here uh, with a couple of little sort of side, side tracks. The first one has to do with this um, monitoring issue. Um, as I've said, there's, there's a bit of a horrible tendency at the moment <clears throat> to leap into trying to just monitor everything uh, and, and hope that somehow out of that will come some sort of useful order. And there are actually some interesting reports starting to come out from what is being done there. Um, but actually, there's another trend that's going on in a variety of different communities around the world which is particularly in the climate, biodiversity, and oceans communities so far, which is to try and say, you know, we're really getting caught up in, in this sort of galloping uh, expansion, um, acceleration of numbers of observations. And at some point, you just run out of capacity to actually do more observations, especially in, in developing countries. So, <clears throat> so I mean, it, there has been a, quite a thoughtful uh, uh, a tackling of this, particularly initially in the climate space, to ask, well, can we actually come up with this idea of essential variables, which in essence might sit between the observations and indicators and might hold out the possibility that by being really critical about choosing which ones are important and which ones can contribute to multiple indicators and things like that, uh, that we could actually, if anything, narrow down the set of observations that we need instead of having them perpetually expand. So that's being explored in those specific domains, but I guess we're now asking, so can we do this actually for the SDGs more generally? Because in truth, uh, a lot of the material that's needed for monitoring the SDGs is being collected by the variables or the biodiversity ones. Uh, there's loads actually of social data, of course, which isn't framed as essential variables, but which is not that different. Uh, and one could think of things like cities um, and, other, and other topics uh, also having a thought of having some thinking about what are the really critical ones. And then we'd be left uh, with some important core uh, essential SDG variables which would be addressing the things which are sort of which come from this come from trying to deal with the uh, sum being greater than the parts. 
Um, and, and it would be particularly to do with some of these sorts of integration things. And, and we would argue, we have argued, that uh, the sort of filtering mechanism you would put on these is partly to capture the system essence. I'll talk for a moment in a moment about that. There's a lot behind that. Um, but secondly, to uh, try and link to where, um, where the measures might, might help uh, promote the actual transformations that we, <clears throat> that we need in the energy systems and the, uh, the way we uh, use food and, and so on and things like consumption. Um, thirdly, uh, and perhaps particularly importantly, capture some key areas where, where this policy coherence is needed. So, so some indicators that really target that issue. And then this idea of indispensability, just meaning that they might be useful for more than one thing. So, uh, so that idea has been sitting there. Now, now, I mean, it turns out it doesn't take long for this to raise some um, quite significant sort of conceptual challenges. Um, this is one, actually, Ian, which I think would be the topic of another ARC proposal we were talking about this afternoon. <laughs> and it's probably uh, in Manfred's area too. But this is, but this is um, so just if you actually ask, well, you want to try and conceptualize this integrated system in a way where you could ask what are the critical variables in it in terms of how it functions. Well, there's been some really interesting evolution over the past decade or so, I think, or probably several decades, in how we conceptualize these linkages between nature and society. Uh, and there's a great paper, actually, this one that's referenced here um, uh, by uh, Marina Fischer-Kowalski from the uh, Vienna Social Ecology School that actually reviews some of these um, developments. And, you know, if you go back a bit, or probably even still today, the people thinking about this who come mainly from the natural sciences um, tradition tend to, I'm overstating it, but they tend to sort of see the cultural side as reasonably static and the important things that are happening are on the natural sciences side, but they are thinking about how uh, management evolves um, on the right-hand side of that and so on. Conversely, if you look at uh, some of the social science theories, which I don't really know very much about, but um, the paper argues that you see almost the reverse, that the natural side is seen as a fairly static thing, uh, and it's actually the societal side that's doing all the evolution. Um, in reality, of course, we need a deeply coupled uh, idea of this where we're seeing this sort of uh, endogenous change happening within both sides, or maybe you don't even see them as both sides. They're, they're actually a single thing, but, but we do have to think about how to unpick the uh, way that it functions. So even in just saying, oh, let's just try and um, screen these variables by something that's really important to how the system functions, there's actually some pretty profound questions we're asking, which I think there are some really uh, interesting, cutting-edge uh, thinking going on about just at the moment in terms of how we conceptualize uh, this nature-culture uh, interaction which sits pretty profoundly at the question of how you get interdisciplinary work across there uh, and create sort of hypotheses or ways of thinking uh, that genuinely uh, capture uh, ideas from both sides of that. The, the, the second aspect of that was about transformation change. And I mean, here, I guess I just, uh, I just like to um, remind people of how rapidly this can happen. Um, there's, a, there's a nice uh, set of slides which Naki at... Um, that IASA uses quite often, uh, just to remind you that transformation, which I think can be a slightly frightening sort of idea to people, um, actually is happening all the time. Uh, and uh, it's easier perhaps to see in retrospect. But this is a lovely example, which some of you may have seen before. On the left here is um, the Easter parade in Fifth Avenue, New York in 1900. Uh, and if you can look closely at that photo, and I can assure you if you look closely, it's true, there is no way you can see a car in there anywhere. It's all horses. And in fact, uh, you know, the apocryphal story is that the New York 
uh, City Council at the time was, uh, or actually a few years before this, was debating the real challenge for the city, which was that they were going to get buried in horse dung, um, and how were they going to manage that over time. Here it is 13 years later, just before the war, and uh, you know, there is no horse in that picture. They're all cars. So in 13 years, that's actually the same amount of time that we have to meet the uh, sustainable development goals, which are due in 2030. There was this extraordinary transformation of, uh, of how the city was used, how people moved, uh, and all sorts of other aspects, which, are, which, are, which is really quite amazing. So, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of both a challenge and a positive thing to remember that transformation can happen quite quickly, and it can happen in all sorts of different ways uh, without belaboring it. It can be through sort of widgets that take off, like your mobile phone, and they evolve quite rapidly and now find their way into all parts of the world being used for things that they were never intended for or no one consciously intended them for. Uh, you can obviously have uh, real transformational changes in ideas, and it's good to remind ourselves of this. This is uh, John Menard Keynes talking at Bretton Woods in 1944, where they sort of took the decision, as I understand it, as a rather temporary measure to use GDP as the measure of progress. Um, I think Maynard Keynes himself said that it was obviously inadequate, but something to use for a while, uh, which we, seem, we feel like we're trapped in and you can't do anything because that's the only thing that's shown on TV and stuff like that. Uh, but in fact, it's clearly a short-term idea that we invented 50 years ago and we could change, change our minds about now if we wanted, 60 years or so. Um, and indeed, uh, this rather small graph here, that's uh, GDP continuing to go up. Uh, that's about 1970, about there. And this thing here, which is the genuine progress indicator, which Bob Costanza recommends, uh, which takes account of some of the um, non-goods uh, that, that GDP doesn't. Uh, and you can see that it appears that we've pretty much plateaued on the, on the genuine progress indicator, even though GDP continues to go up, which suggests that we are not actually measuring the right things, which probably won't surprise you. Uh, you can obviously get transformation by lots of smaller activities at some point reaching some sort of tipping point, and we can certainly have uh, sort of crises which push us into this too. So there's a variety of ways, and I think understanding how this happens is really important. But it's also really important to recognize that there are sort of precursors that you can put in place. There are narratives which help drive people to think in particular ways. Uh, a whole set of issues like that, which I think are deeply and profoundly transdisciplinary and deal very much in the stories that, uh, that the humanities can help us tell, the narratives that we can, that we can help tell. Uh, and I really like this diagram here, which just sort of uh, speaks to the idea that we sort of sit in incremental change for quite a long time, and then uh, something or other, one of those sorts of things that I was just talking about, triggers us to jump into a transformational cycle for a bit, and then, and then we go back into incremental change. And the real question is, what are we aiming towards? What sorts of narratives are we creating? What sort of vision of the future do we have during that incremental time that sets us up such that when the transformation comes, uh, it goes in a good direction rather than a bad one. So that's a pretty important um, cross-disciplinary sort of issue. Let me uh, come back to another aspect of integration um, in, in relation to the SDGs here. And, uh, and, and this is the question of synergies and trade-offs amongst um, SDGs. So oh, that's rather dark, sorry. But um, this is just talking about some of the synergies. So synergies where by achieving one of them, uh, we could actually make a lot of progress on other things too. So here's a classic example, uh, access to um, uh, so-called modern energy, that's the term of the UN, uh, for which one would like to read um, renewable energy, uh, but not always. Um, but using, using that for cooking, where people might otherwise be burning solid fuels, uh, ha has all sorts of potential flow-on effects. It can reduce 
local pollution have health benefits as a consequence. Um, it can reduce emissions, carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, it can free up women and children to have time from collecting wood and all that sort of thing uh, to actually be educated or perhaps to set up, take up micro loans for small businesses. Uh, it can even, on a small scale at least, but perhaps quite large when you add it all up, uh, reduce woodcutting impacts on biodiversity and things like that. So, uh, so these are the sorts of actually the sophisticated sort of synergies that might be got out of a thoughtful way of doing some of these things. And increasingly, we're starting to see some studies come out. Uh, here's one this year, which actually looked at how this might scale up to a global level, which can actually start to help you think about where to set priorities. So this was a, this was a study, this Lacey et al. and PNAS, um, which looked at getting energies specifically to households, preferentially to households that burn, currently burn solid fuels. Uh, and they showed that by 2050, if you did that, you could actually have an appreciable, just on that one action, you could have an appreciable impact on global warming, uh, and you could, you could reduce premature deaths by, by 10 million, and that you could target this. There were sort of three or four countries in the world where you get most of the benefit. So this sort of thing starts to really give us um, some target for the sort of planetary health type of initiatives that one might um, think about. Well, um, la, uh, this year, actually, early this year, uh, there was a report from the International Council for Science, who uh, inexplicably has the uh, acronym ICSU, uh, which you will realize doesn't have the same number of letters in as International Council for Science, but I won't explain that to you, um, which actually looked at this, looked at a bit of a formal analysis of these interactions, and I don't expect you to read all of the details on the right there. Uh, but this was uh, an effort just to take a systematic look at the targets in four of the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, and uh, they actually assessed them against a sort of seven-point scale, which went from highly synergistic, you basically couldn't achieve one without the other, through to uh, essentially antagonistic, where if you did one, you would, you would actually prevent the other one happening. Um, and the positive thing that they found just at the very high level was that of the 316 or so uh, in interactions they got just from these four SDGs, over three-quarters of them are synergistic. So there's this huge opportunity to achieve things uh, you know, more cheaply, more efficiently, with less resources, uh, by thinking consciously about um, coordinating our actions here. And of course, of the ones that are actually antagonistic, that are real trade-offs, um, by focusing in on those, uh, we can try and find ways of um, minimizing their, the, the impacts of their trade-offs. So I think there's huge opportunities for research in thinking about this and really thinking about how we target uh, those places where we can get the best co-benefits. Uh, and there's actually huge opportunities for business development in that too, that you could actually focus some of your investment in new businesses to help with that. And that sort of leads me on to, I think, the last of the points I wanted to make about integration here, which is, uh, which is about the so-called means of implementation. So, uh, so I mentioned the 17 goals uh, and that there were 169 targets. F 42, as it happens, of those targets are actually about the processes of achieving the things as opposed to the sort of content outcome that you're trying to get. So uh, uh, about how to organize ourselves rather than how many people should not be hungry, for example. Um, and, and in fact, all of goal 17 is given over to that. Um, and so uh, we started thinking about how you might integrate these, the actual process of doing things as opposed to the, the outcome, um, and, uh, and ask how you might integrate across sectors, how you might integrate between different actors, government agencies, private sector, civil society, so forth, uh, and how you might integrate across countries of different, um, different income levels, for example. And uh, these are the seven areas of broad areas of uh, means of implementation that are defined in, in goal 17, so capacity building, the sort of researchy bit of data and monitoring and related things, partnerships, 
finance, trade, technology, and governance. And you can, not only can you think of things you could do in each of those which would be likely to create more integrated outcomes or less integrated outcomes, um, but actually you can think of them as a whole system as well. So for example, um, if you did come up with this set of essential sustainable SDG variables, you could use those to create a sort of common standards package which you encouraged um, partnerships to uh, judge themselves against and which you created them with small business against, for example. Uh, you could actively direct finance to support um, sustainable development products and services uh, in those sorts of areas, particularly in lower income countries in terms of uh, financial transfers. You could think about trade arrangements to facilitate the access of those services into more developed countries. Uh, you could think about the technology and the governance and capacity building to aim towards all of those things. You could actually think about the whole thing as a system. So, so here again is a place where, uh, again, uh, there's a whole set of skills needed into thinking about this stuff which go way beyond anything that physical science is going to provide. All right, I've just got um, three or four slides to finish up, just really, in a way, getting a bit reflective about this. Uh, the first one's just about these models of knowledge production, and some of you will probably be very uh, aware of this sort of thinking, but I, I guess we've had this... Uh, actually, we've had a slightly more sophisticated picture than I'm going to present here, but we do have... Uh, we have had this sense that... Um, of this linear knowledge of... Uh, of, uh, of knowledge... Sorry, linear model of knowledge production in the past where you sort of plonk research funding in up the top of the pipeline there. Uh, it does some pure research and that gets turned into applied research and picked up and, and you know, somehow immediately produces some societal benefits. Um, there are, uh, I hear the odd laugh there, I do, there are in fact, of course, some, some sorts of problems, well-structured problems, where this works pretty well, actually. Um, and for those ones where it can work efficiently, it's, it's very sensible to have it because it's actually quite a straightforward and easy model to organize. Unfortunately, we know that most of our, um, most of our uh, sustainable, sustainability sorts of problems are not in that well-ordered, uh, simple sort of category and that they're actually very complex, uh, quite unordered, um, and that we need a much more sophisticated model which has come to be talked about in terms of these ideas of collective learning, of uh, engagement, of co-production, co-design, uh, of knowledge. Um, and there's a, a lot of work emerging on this which I think is uh, really important and it's certainly something that's a key sort of focus for Future Earth. Uh, but it remains really important to try and understand when it's appropriate to go to this more complex model, which definitely uses more resources, but on the other hand, you don't get any outcome at all from the resources you use if you, if you don't apply this sort of approach in these complex areas. And I, I just happened to have gone to a book launch last Friday, so I just had to slip this in because I think this is a great, a great little book from here in Australia um, from Pete Leith, who's down at, and some co-authors down at uh, University of Tasmania. Um, which is talking about this, uh, the title there you can, that you can probably read says Enhancing Science Impact, but actually under it it says Bridging Research, Policy and Practice for Sustainability, which explains better what the book's really about. Uh, and they talk about this idea of this boundary that should be porous between um, science and society, science and decision-making, research and decision-making. Uh, and they talk about um, actively supporting that boundary work by building the appropriate social and institutional infrastructure to enable that. Uh, and they break this down into these five key elements and then talk about what sort of things you need in different circumstances in terms of the objects that people use to, uh, as sort of boundary objects to talk about things, uh, the actors involved, the relationships between those actors, the networks that sort of, uh, that are the accumulation of all of those relationships and others. 
uh, and then organizations that might actually sit on that boundary and help with the thing. So I, I recommend that. It's a really, uh, actually, it's a really nicely written book as well. So Pete, it turns out, I discovered, is a um, slam dunk poet as well. And so it's actually written really nicely. Anyway, uh, so that's a really important element. And in Future Earth, I think we're trying to live this, and I won't claim for a moment that we're doing it perfectly yet, but we're trying to live it by the sort of uh, overall set of functions that I sort of mentioned briefly in relation to the projects earlier on, where we're really trying to speed up this virtuous cycle uh, that comes from convening and co-designing research priorities, trying to push those priorities then into funding agencies that will probably fund them within their national uh, areas or whatever, uh, not through Future Earth directly, uh, but then trying to pick up the people who are doing that and helping to coordinate them, link them in with decision makers as results start to come out, uh, perhaps build the understanding that's at a global level uh, that might go beyond individual case studies, for example, uh, put those together in syntheses and products for decision makers with uh, sort of co-designing those as well, hopefully then uh, actually seeing some of it happen in action and learn and evaluate from that, uh, and then get that cycle going again and again. And ideally, we're doing that at all sorts of scales, across disciplines, across, across knowledge systems, uh, all aimed, in my opinion, at trying to generate this more global, uh, more nimble global innovation system. All right, I don't want to finish without just mentioning that apart from the global future Earth, there is also uh, a growing effort to have a, to establish a sort of national future Earth Australia here. So uh, future Earth's encouraging the development of uh, quite a lot of national bodies. I think we're up to about um, 50 or so around the world now. Uh, and um, here in Australia, I guess there's been a couple of years uh, discussions about this, which are gradually, well, they're starting to form into a sort of concrete diagram, you can see there, uh, and actually a fantastic logo. I think that's such a good logo, but anyway, that probably shouldn't be the measure of how successful it is. Um, and it's really trying to uh, help to um, bridge the connections between Future Earth on the global side and uh, Australia, uh, Australian people, researchers here. Uh, well, actually, not just researchers. Um, it's it's uh, supported by um, four of the academies, so the Academy of Science, which is actually hosting the office in the interim at the moment, uh, but also the Academy for Humanities, uh, Social Sciences, and ATSI, the um, uh, technological uh, sciences side, Techno technological sciences and engineering, I should say. Uh, and it's uh, very keen to sort of uh, help facilitate people's engagement into, into both national and international activities there. Uh, Imran Ahmed there is the uh, guy who's running this in the, uh, at, and you can find out more at that website if you're interested, but this is something which is still quite nascent. Um, so I think it's going to take another year or two to really get bowling along, but uh, hopefully if enough people can engage with it, we will create something really useful out of that that can be effective in Canberra. And lastly then, let me just finish on this slide. Um, actually, I'll finish on the next one, but this is the last substantive one, just to reflect a moment on the integration issues I've been talking about. So uh, how important these are uh, across disciplines, um, between research and society, and also across policy domains out there in the, in the real world. Um, I, think it's, I think it is important to recognize that uh, this is not for everything and everyone, and anyone who's an engineer here and thinks that that is actually a sensible arrangement of COGS um, uh, can, well, can be shot anyway. Here is one which might actually work as a, as a COG chain. Um, but so it isn't for everything or everyone, and I think that should be respected entirely. Um, but there are a set of problems where uh, in essence, um, even if it se seems to be inefficient on a superficial sort of level uh, and, and thereby actually come under the, um, 
under this sort of critique of a, of a uh, neoliberal neo sort of um, economic approach to things. Uh, the problem really is that where it really is needed, nothing else will do. So we actually have to think about this investment because do, investing in other things is far more inefficient because it doesn't get any outcome uh, in terms of trying to put our apples and oranges together. So um, I sort of commend you to, to be enthusiastic about these issues of integration in the university because I think the, the various initiatives that are going on here that are seeking to do that uh, are incredibly important for this class of incredibly important um, sustainability problems that we face and the whole planetary health initiative is part of that. I'll leave you just with this. Uh, if you're interested, uh, there's the website down the bottom left there uh, that you can hop onto and, and find out more about what I've been saying. Thanks. Right. Uh, it, it makes me uh, very proud as an Australian that uh, Mark has provided such leadership over the last decade internationally in this space at a time which has been very difficult, I think, for scientists in the field of sustainability in this country. So, uh, all power you're, to you. You're not referring to our great ex-leaders' comments about climate change in Britain <laughs> the last 24 hours, I'm sure. Not, not specifically, but, uh, but uh, no doubt there'll be um, uh, questions and, uh, and comments uh, from folk in the room. So uh, we've got a microphone up the back. If you put your hand up, uh, uh, then we'll bring the mic along to you. Maybe uh, to get things started, I might... Uh, just open up the conversation around uh, the differences between the Millennium Development Goals and the Sustainable Development Goals. As uh, you pointed out, Mark, uh, the MDGs were very much focused on development uh, goals for low and middle income countries. And in that context, high income countries like Australia were essentially uh, there to help finance what was to happen in low and middle income countries. And of course, more generally, the UN is principally engaged um, uh, with uh, low and middle income countries. You know, high income countries don't tend to like uh, taking advice uh, from the UN system, particularly I think the Anglophone uh, countries in the world, sadly. But uh, I guess my question for you would be, uh, as we transition to these SDGs, and uh, we need at least as much action in this country uh, as we do in, uh, in low and middle income countries. What are you seeing around the world in terms of uh, governments engaging uh, with the SDGs, high income countries? Yeah. Perhaps some reflections on Australia, but also on other countries and uh, where we're seeing progress. Yeah, I mean, uh, of course, the, the logic flows fairly simply that if you start to say, um, that we might achieve, um, as, as we might have hoped from the MDGs, that we might achieve some development outcomes, but they then get undermined in the long term by the implications of resource use, then of course you've actually got to think about who's using the resources, and that's the rest of us, mostly. Yes. Um, I think, uh, I, I'm not sure I'd agree with your characterization that in general the um, developed countries aren't taking the, MD, the SDGs reasonably seriously. Uh, they're not actually going to change their consumption patterns overnight, I know, but I think um, a lot of countries actually, uh, if you look at places like Britain and, and many of the Scandinavian countries, for example, um, there is actually a lot of work going on to think about how um, a, an appropriately interpreted uh, element of the SDGs should be implemented there, which would include uh, issues to do with uh, reducing, reducing resource consumption. There, there are a few notable exceptions, of course. Well, even... And even uh, 
thinking about the US. In fact, there's a, a, lot, a huge amount of work going on at the city and state level, uh, whatever might be happening at the federal level. And that's, to some extent, true here, too. I, I think, uh, to come to Australia, I think um, my sense is that the federal government has got very sidetracked into the need to report against these things, and most of the action that's happening on SDGs at the federal level at the moment, I think it's fair to say, is worrying about whether we can report to the next communication to, um, to the uh, high-level political forum. But, the, um, uh, but, but, but we're not seeing that in other countries. I, I, I'll just tell one quick anecdote, because I, just had a, I was invited to this amazing meeting in Mexico about two months ago, which was one of the, uh, one of the provinces, one of the states there, uh, Guanajuato, which I can almost say now, um, which, uh, which actually over the last six months has done an exercise of looking at all of their government policies in a broad sense against the SDGs and had then got this little, um, uh, well actually turned out to be quite a large conference together to talk about um, what sort of implications that might have for the, for the uh, state government's policies going forwards. So I mean that's an amazing uh, effort to put in really and it would be, I, I think there is a tiny bit of interest in the SDGs at the state level here in Australia, and it would be great to see that sort of thing happening here. Yeah. Oh, thanks very much. Yes, please, Ian. Thanks very much. Um, a great talk, Mark. I, I wanted to ask you about integrated knowledge, um, because lots of us are aspiring to it. Can you give us some examples of where it is operating, where integrated knowledge systems really seem to be being implemented and being work and actually working and, and what are they like? <laughs> All right, I wouldn't mind sitting down over a couple of glasses of wine on that question, Ian. I think, um, but I do I do see. Um, well, I mean, I, I I look at you because I was hearing you talking about some of these this afternoon. So I, I mean, I look to you to to the answer to part of that, but but I do see. Um, I, I I mean, so. so uh, this needs answering at multiple levels, doesn't it? I think it's much easier to see how those sorts of things happen at a relatively local level, to be honest. Um, and I think when you look around, there are all sorts of examples, whether it's in, uh, in agriculture and a close relationship between uh, research and, um, and farmers, or whether it's, uh, of course, I think in, in development, actually, quite often there's been some great stuff there, but very much at the local scale. Um, as you go up through scales, I mean, uh, I think there are some countries that actually do this better in terms of really deeply getting advice and not just technocratic advice but um, you know diverse sources of advice into into their decision making and I look at places like um, you know perversely countries that we might look at and think are um, quite often somewhat um, top down hierarchical uh, now i 'm going to name what they are but I mean places like South Korea and and even Taiwan or something. Uh, they actually have a much longer, a much deeper um, tradition of pulling people out of academia into, um, into ministries, into being ministers uh, in the way that they appoint them than we do here in Australia where, where, we mostly, uh, where mostly it's lawyers who get in there, which is very dubious having a brother who's a, who's a lawyer. Um, I think at the global level, we are seeing some stuff here. I mean, in actual fact, for all its limitations and failings, the actual SDG development process was one of the most um, consultative thing that really did bring people from indigenous backgrounds, from sort of women's background, from, well, from science community and others in to assist with the thinking about it. Um, I, I mean, there are all sorts of perversities in that, but there was actually some really, it, it was probably a much more consultative process than the UN's ever done. And you look at somewhere like IPVES, the um, uh, Intergovernmental Platform on 
biodiversity and ecosystem yes. services, thank you. Um, and I mean, they are making a real effort in, in how you bring knowledge systems together and of course finding some challenges in that, but actually really working at it at that international level of, of things. So, so um, I don't despair at all. I think we've got a long way to go to do it really well. <laughs> Uh, but I think there's probably more out there than we perhaps realise on a day-to-day -day basis. Great. Yeah, Manfred, yeah. Uh, th thanks, Mark. Um, I liked your story where you talked about your son and that he only grew up in sort of above average uh, temperature uh, territory. Now, it reminds me of uh, a PhD student of mine once told me I was born post-silent spring, right? And I did not grow up with songbirds, but I'm still happy. So to me, it was uh, striking because I thought there was some homeostasis going on where he, well, it, it just didn't matter, the silent spring that was just gone and, and he'd moved on. Yeah. Yeah. Then I remember a work by Bob Costanza that came out recently on social traps, where he talks about addiction and denial and that being really substantial barriers on a widespread scale. So my question to you in terms of knowledge integration and um, transformational change, uh, what is your, your opinion about the role of psychology, especially for barriers to the effect that knowledge integration can have potentially on transformational change? Yeah, I mean, my simple answer to that is, oh, it's huge. <laughs> uh, but that's probably not very helpful. Um, I, I, I mean, um, Bob Costanza's written about this too in his <clears throat> on the consumption side and the idea that uh, you know we're addicts that can't can't get off consumption, um, and and that actually uh, there may be some really good things to learn from the sort of psychology literature of addiction to to think about how you apply them at the national to global scale um, in the in the sort of whole issue of consumption. So I mean that's actually there's a paper called something like uh, I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's. It's got consumption and addiction in the title anyway with Bob Costanza, which is worth a read. Um, I mean, I think those things are important. I, I mean, the first thing you commented on, which is this possibility that, uh, of course, people do adjust their, uh, their, their expectations to what they've experienced. Um, and I guess, I guess that's, a, that's a pretty challenging... This is one definitely for the environmental humanities to think about. Um, I, I mean, do we value things that are... Do we, do we value the fact that uh, our grandkids may not actually ever know that they didn't know the Great Barrier Reef in the form that we knew it 20 years ago sort of thing. That, that's a really deep, ethical, um, challenging question, I think, uh, which, I, which I can't stand here and give the answer to, really. I, I, I do think, though, that there's a, that there's a level at which, um, again, in a sort of nested way, which as a society we come to... Uh, perceive that there's some sort of minimum level of things we should hand on to the next generation, which is just not acceptable to go below. And that's part of today's values rather than tomorrow's in a way. Uh, and so perhaps we have to come back to that, and that in a way is what the beacon of the uh, SDGs ought to be about, is, is establishing what that, uh, what that uh, at least part of it, uh, establishing what that sort of minimum ought to be. But anyway, I have no doubt that community psychology <laughs> is a really important part of thinking about this. Thanks for that. Um, a question up the back and then down here. Yeah, yeah uh, thank you. Just building on um, the gentleman's question here, um, in terms of psychology, there is obviously the end result that we'd like to achieve. What about in terms of the process for gathering information and synthesising information? How does the psychology play a role there? Because obviously you're dealing with multiple groups. 
And in essence, we're talking dialogue and the need for dialogue. And based on the neoliberal discourse, obviously corporations don't listen to anybody outside, or it's very marginal at best. Um, so when you talk about sustainable development, for example, the greater pressures on companies are external. Government regulators, uh, um, corporate social um, responsibility, things like that. So in terms of psychology, because I, I think it's critical, personally, I think it's critical. Is there any discussion on that front with regards to how we interact with groups towards a common goal? Um, well, again, you're pushing me on the edges of my expertise here, but that's never stopped me making comments. So, um, uh, I, I mean, I think, um, I, I mean, again, yes, the answer is yes in one sense, uh, that it is an important aspect. And, and yes, also that there, is, there are people thinking about those sorts of things. Um, I, I mean, again, you raise a whole lot of issues that sort of get into um, participatory democracy and, and issues like that. There's, there's a very frustrating little experiment going on in the ACT at the moment where uh, the government actually tried to establish a participatory uh, uh, governance, uh, participatory um, democracy approach to some discussions around, I think, around our um, licensing stuff, uh, about our car licenses. But, um, and, and there was actually a very low uptake of interest in, in coming along and, and joining into it, which I found actually very sad. Not that I turned up to do it either, but anyway. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, there's some psychological issues in that uh, of sort of apathy or disinterest in, in dealing with some of these things, for sure, uh, as well as ones in, in um, how you actually get a... I, I mean, so psychology is important, but I think it's really important to recognise there's a lot of other things that are really important in this too. There's issues of power, uh, which, are, which are totally crucial. How do, you, how do you establish a consultative process which isn't um, held hostage to the, to the issues of power? Uh, how does it actually even afterwards feed into something that, that enables it to, to seem legitimate and credible. Um, uh, there's a whole, there's a, there is quite a large literature about this whole area which I'm now stumbling over because I don't know enough about it, but maybe other people here do and it would be good to, in, to bring other people into this conversation. Uh, but I don't have any doubt that there's some uh, really important issues around that sort of, sort of topic, yeah. Great, thanks very much. Well, I think a question down here, yeah, and then we've got two more and then we probably should wrap things up at that point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to uh, bring you back to your area of expertise, if that's okay. All right, and a good um, accent too. <laughs> a quick question about the, um, I guess, the second challenge that you mentioned between the synergies and antagonistic aspects of the goals. Right. You mentioned an example for the synergies where it was very kumbaya and everybody was happy because we're yeah. making a, a quick progress, but what happens yeah. in the opposite where there are antagonistic goals. Yeah. Um, look, the first thing to say is it may look kumbaya, but actually people don't do it. So actually yeah. we don't get those things most of the time. So anyway, I mean, uh, you're, you're quite right though, that that's, that's the sort of positive side, which is easy to sell as a good message. Uh, I mean, the really obvious sort of big ticket one <laughs> on the, on the trade-offs is, uh, you know, getting everyone out of poverty or giving them good jobs and all the other things that are listed around the goals and not wrecking the planet in terms of climate change and, uh, and consumption. Um, and, and uh, you know, this actually, the one area actually which before the, um, uh, before the uh, goals were actually negotiated actually had some concrete analysis on this was the, was the energy usage and climate change goals which are potentially in opposition because if everyone has lots of energy, so there was a UN, UN in 2013 adopted a thing called, uh, was it modern energy for all? It was energy for all anyway was the key part of it and it was to get energy to everyone. 
and uh, actually the people in IASA in, in Vienna had a look at um, was it actually possible to deliver energy to everyone at some sort of median rate for the world and simultaneously stay below two degrees C at that time they were looking at. And so they did this fantastic big analysis which sort of looked at uh, a whole series of like two or three hundred scenarios of possible future development with different um, patterns of increasing uh, energy efficiency and things like that. And they were able basically in that to say it is possible, pretty challenging, but it's possible providing you're up in this little quadrant of the graph that they plotted, which meant you had to have a rate of improvement in carbon intensity, the amount of carbon you use per, um, uh, per unit of energy. Uh, and, and actually another measure, but you had to have an increase in, uh, an improvement in those which was at least you know 2.5% per year or something like that. I can't remember the exact numbers. Uh, the point was that they could actually identify a target, a pretty well-defined target. And so in, in essence, what they were doing there, which I think we could do with a lot of other of those trade-offs, is to say that they're a trade-off if we uh, 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 tackle them ignorantly. But actually, um, once we recognize that it's a trade-off, we can start to look for what's, what's the combinations of events which would actually essentially um, uncouple them or make them not a trade-off. And, and, and so that's the challenge, I think. Now, that particular issue sort of got addressed in the goals, actually. The targets on energy had a, a doubling of energy efficiency and a, uh, I can't remember, the other one was the rate of increase in renewables, but they sort of related to the targets that these guys had identified, not quite as specific, and that would have probably been very hard to negotiate, but they're, but they're, but they're in the same, they're doing the same sort of thing, pushing towards that direction. Uh, the problem is that not many of the targets that, that deal with those interactions do that. The, the only other one I can think of that really does that sort of thing is on waste, um, where there is a, a halving of food waste on the, in, in food, which is another one of those trade-off things. If you're going to make people less hungry, uh, how do you do that without just chewing up lots more land sort of thing? So, so yes, it's a real issue, but I think if you've identified them, you can actually start thinking about them in a structured way. Great. Thank you for that. I think a question over here and then back towards the front. Thanks. Um, just had a short comment and then my main question, but oh, good, I can finish my glass. maybe one of the things that under, underlies the psychology of people <laughs> is a factor is uh, values, what, pe what people value. Mm -hmm. And particularly, um, we know they value life, um, but I guess it, it eventually boiled down to what the majority of people value. Um, maybe they should value quality of life and some of the things they're um, losing, uh, things like that. So, that was just a comment. The question was the 17 SDGs and how you're looking at interactions. Mm. It sort of resembles a complex system. Yeah. And so, Maybe a very complex system. Yeah. So when you start to look at the interactions, and it makes me think that each one needs to be optimised. And to do that, you need to have a target that you maximise. So I'm just wondering, do you have a focus on what the target is that you're trying to maximise? Yeah, so I mean that's a good, that's a good question. Actually, actually let me comment firstly on your comment which is, um, which is to say I completely agree with that and I think one of the big issues facing us is actually creating, or, or, or no not creating because we have plenty of them, but actually establishing in the public mind a better measure of progress. Um, uh, we really have to get off GDP and so 
I mean, I think that the actual problem we've got at the moment is that there's lots of other options that we could be using and no one can settle on one and agree and just get it into effect, at least that's my reading. And so, I mean, there's a real challenge there. But on, on your, your actual question, um, I mean, yes, it is a complex system. I have to say, I come from a systems modeling background and consequently I'm totally skeptical about optimizing complex systems. <laughs> Uh, I, I, the, the interactions in general, I think, mean that, that you can't really take that sort of approach. You may still conceptually be having that in the back of your mind. And if you're conceptually having it in your back of your mind, then I think uh, the idea of global sustainability and, and human well-being sort of is an is a, um, objective function that you're trying to head towards. And making that operational uh, is... Um, is, is something that you might do through the, actually through the goals themselves, because they sort of establish, or the targets at least establish in principle some, some uh, objectives for that. Um, uh, but you're quite right that the, the fact that there are interactions means that there isn't a simple, if you just address one by itself, it's definitely going to upset other things. We know that from the experiences of the MDGs. So, uh, so it's a challenging thing. Can we actually optimize? Mm, I don't know. There's a really interesting global project getting going at the moment called The World in 2050, which is trying to take a lot of modeling and ask, can we think about what pathways could go through 2030 and meet the goals as stated, and then in 2050 end up in a, in a more sustainable way, whatever that might mean, and they're trying to define some sort of things for that. Uh, with the idea that it starts to constrain a little bit the way we can get from now to 2030 if we still want to be going okay after 2030 sort of thing. Um, and so that's a sort of modeling thing, not really in the mold of optimizing though, it's more exploring alternative pathways and exploring scenarios of the future. And I think in these complex systems, uh, thinking about scenarios, stories of the future and narratives of them, knowing that we've got uncertainties in technological development and things like that, which in many ways dwarf the uncertainties in climate change, um, it, 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 it actually gives us a better grounding to have a, uh, a sort of adaptive capacity to be able to deal with changing circumstances and think about them well and to engage society well, do the psychological things well, um, which is actually a more promising thing than trying to optimise in a, in a formal sort of system sense. Great. Thanks very much. I think a final question was here. Oh, all right. Okay. okay. No worries. Well, look... Uh, Thanks very much uh, for that, Mark. I think uh, we've had a lively conversation and uh, plenty of food for thought. And certainly Mark will be around for a little bit longer if there's other follow-up things that you'd like to discuss. But uh, we greatly appreciate you all coming along tonight and uh, look forward to taking these conversations uh, further in the weeks and months ahead. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.